It's great to be here with you this morning. It's a great blessing to worship God together, to gather his people and to open the word and and to study those things together is a great blessing that God has given us today. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to share it with you. Uh, this morning, I'd like to talk about contending for the faith. Now, uh, if you look around politically, what's happening right now, there seems to be quite a bit of contention, wouldn't you say? You know, there's a, a war that's that's literally started out now between Ukraine and Russia and involves many people, and they're contending for those things. And whenever I think about contending for the faith, I really think about fighting a war to defend our faith. And this passage can be found in Jude chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we're going to do a lot of reading in Jude today, so I encourage you to open your pew Bible to the book of Jude, and we'll look through that. Jude chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and persevere in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints." So this is kind of a strange way to start talking about a war, isn't it? What does he say here as he gets started? He talks about all these wonderful things and all the security that we have in the faith, doesn't he? What does he say there? Uh, the first thing he mentions there is that we are sanctified by God there in verse 1. God is sanctifying us. God is serving us. He's protecting us, preserved in Jesus we're not doing this preserving. God and Jesus are doing the preserving for us here. It says we are called. We are called by God. He's reaching out to us. And we are given mercy, peace, and love. So whenever I read that, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It sounds like God is taking care of everything for me. He's preserving me. He's calling me. He's sanctifying me. He's giving me all these gifts of mercy, peace, and love. Now, why does that lead to contention? Why do I need to be fighting so hard if all these things are taken care of? And another uh, popular passage, verse 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the, pers uh, the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's only that, but he's keeping us from falling. He's presenting us faultless and great joy. God is doing a lot of wonderful things here. But what does Jude say here? We don't know what church he was writing to necessarily, but he was writing to followers of Jesus. And he says in verse three, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation. So he said, I wanted to talk more about how wonderful things are in God, how we have this common salvation. We have all these blessings through God. We're united together and all these wonderful things that show God has given us the victory over evil. He's given us the victory over all the sin that we could face in this world. But he found it needful to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. He said, I would love to talk more about that, but you need to hear something else. You need to hear that you must be earnestly contending for the faith. He's telling them, I would love to talk about how blessed we are and how comfortable we are, but I need to tell you that you need to contend for the faith. We need to be working in the faith. You know, God's giving his followers confidence that their faith will be victorious, but he also is telling us here that we need to go out and fight for it as well. So even though he has told us he's going to give us the victory, we must go out and contend 
for that victory through the faith. So really, I, there are two things that the book will tell us here. What is, what is actually threatening the faith and how do we contend for the faith? Those are the two questions I want to look at. So he, he tells us, you know, God has given us the victory. He's done all these things for us, but we need to contend for the faith. We need to know what are we contending against? What are the things that we need to be cautious of? What are the things that we need to look out for? And then how do we go about taking care of those things? Those are the two things we'd like to look at this morning. Third, starting out with what threatens the faith. Continuing in Jude 1 verse 4, it says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't start by telling us the solution of how we contend for the faith here, but he starts by telling us what we need to look out for. And he says there are these men here, and it looks like these were false teachers within a particular congregation, but ultimately uh, within our congregation and the church today, and the, the overall thought here is that there are people who are a part of this church who it says are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. So they're taking this wonderful gift that God has given us, the gift of grace, and they're turning it into something sinful. Now, that's not unique to just this congregation that he's writing to here. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So here's the problem he's talking about. They're saying, well, now that we have this great gift of grace and nothing can keep us from having the victory in God and he will never let us fall, he'll never uh, let us down, they said, well, let's just do whatever we want. Let's live in this lasciviousness. Let's uh, use the benefit of this grace. In Romans chapter 6, it says, is this a good idea? He kind of asks a rhetorical question. Shall we continue in sin that grace can abound? He says, God forbid. If we put ourselves dead to sin, how can we live longer in it? And this was something that was affecting this congregation. You know, it's so easy for us to fall in to these types of attitudes, isn't it? You know, there, there are many times when we are faced with sin and we really want to give in to that sin and we want to do those things. And sometimes uh, what the Bible talks about is willingly sinning, which he says is a damnable sin. He says, that's not acceptable. We have been put death, put to death. We put sin to death. And now we are living in God. We're not letting this grace abound. Certainly God offers his grace, but these people were taking advantage of that. And what does it say? It says they were denying the only Lord God and Jesus Christ. When they did this action, they were looking at the cross and they didn't understand it, did they? They denied it. They shamed the cross of Christ when they did these actions. This was something that the first century church faced and something that we face today too. It's a mindset of changing from serving God but now that I have this gift of grace, now I can start serving myself again. And we forget about serving God and showing our love for him through our obedience to him. And that's a rejection of the teachings of Jesus. In Jude 1, verse 12 through 13, he kind of gives some more uh, visuals here. And a lot of these come from popular Jewish literature at the time or even um, some Old Testament passages. And you can find those uh, if you, if you read through study Bible or something, I'm sure a lot of those will be marked for you. But what does he say here? He says, these are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds that are without water, carried about by of winds, trees whose fruits wherewith without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. 
raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He gives a lot of these visuals here. One of the first ones there, he talks about the story about the shepherd who was feeding himself and neglecting to feed his sheep. He talks about these clouds that are full of water. They just get carried over with the winds. You know, that one was a lot more meaningful for us when we live out in West Texas when you don't get to see many clouds. And whenever you're praying for that rain and you see the clouds just go on by, you know, it looks like something so great and promising, yeah, it just gets blown away and it means nothing. He talks about these wandering stars, these stars that maybe someone was looking to follow to use as a guide, but they were not a true guide. They were wandering a lot of what this is talking about, I think, is just talking about something not being as advertised, something not uh, something being hypocritical, something that you think looks fruitful, but when you approach it, you see it's not fulfilling what it's supposed to do. It's not bearing fruit. It's not doing these things. And that's how he compares to these people in the church, that they, yeah, sure, they might look like they have things together. Sure, they might look that they're being profitable servants of God. However, they're leading their fellow people astray. They're that wandering star. They're not producing fruit. They're not producing the things that God desires of them because they're misguided in their hearts. And verse 16 says, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men, men's persons and admiration because of advantage. So it says that they're just people who grumble when things aren't going the way that they want them to do. They're murmuring. You know, I really thought we should have done that. And they're just complaining because things don't go their way. I think about um, any toddler on earth who, who doesn't get things exactly like they asked for, no matter how much it makes sense or not. You know, they're just murmuring, you know, why, why'd you do this? That's not how I wanted it to go. And then it says they have great swelling words. They look great, but they're doing that for admiration of others. They just want to look good. They want to be liked. They want to be admired. They want to be advantaged. They want to look like they're a successful person. He says that's what these people were doing in the church. They had turned into people that were showing these attributes. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, it says, The people draw nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is saying whenever what is coming out of your mouth and the things that you do aren't matching what's in the heart and aren't matching what the motivation is, he says that's vain worship. That's something that the church needs to be afraid of. They need to be afraid of this vain worship. He says this is something that's threatening the faith. People who are drawing close with their lips, but their heart is actually far from it. So some of the things he mentions early on in this book of Jude of what threatens the faith, he talks about using grace as an excuse to sin. Well, you know, God's just going to forgive me, so I'm going to keep doing those things. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. Selfishness in general. In a lot of different ways, we see selfishness uh, putting our own ways above the things that God has asked us to do. And selfishness towards him. Hypocrisy, looking like we have a heart towards God, looking like we're really serving God, but really it's just a show. Focusing on the self-image, focusing on looking like a godly person, looking like a good person, looking at the, like those things are true, but really inside it's just vain worship. He says these things had infiltrated the church. These were threatening the faith. When they need to contend for the faith, he says, these are the things you need to be looking for. And, um, and he says that these things hurt. They're, they're hurting the whole church. He says, I wanted to tell you 
that Jesus has your back, that God has taken care of everything. But when I look at your church, you need to hear these things because they're hurting your church. They're separating you from that love of God. They're separating you from the service to him and showing our love for him. Have you ever seen anybody at your work or your school that has any of these attributes? I can tell you that everybody at my work probably has a list. (laughs) of people who do these things or just trying to put themselves ahead. You know, people who are focused on their own career over the good of everybody else who are just hypocritical about things or, or people that will say, well, it doesn't explicitly say that I can't do this, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to push it as close to the boundary as I can. We see these kind of people all the time at, at work, school. Do you ever see these kind of attitudes in our church or in churches uh, around us? You know, he's calling for us here when we contend for the faith to look around our congregation, look around our fellow brethren and look for these things and contend against those things. He'll give us a little more advice on how to do that later. How about most importantly, have you ever seen any of these attitudes in your own heart? I know I certainly have seen these attitudes in my own heart. It's so hard not to be selfish, isn't it? Such a strong contention we have within our hearts. to to fight these things, but we can find these things in our own attitudes. But notice he's saying these things hurt not just you and those in your family, but these hurt the church as a whole. This dishonors God's church. And sometimes I feel like whenever I'm facing my own sin or facing some of these struggles myself, my thought process is so selfish that I don't think about that affecting the entire church. I don't think about how that hurts the Lord's church. But what he's saying here is you need to think about that. This hurts Everybody, this hurts the Lord's church. We need to look at these things and get rid of them. And then he gives us some examples. In Jude 1, verse 5, he says, I will therefore put in your remembrance, though you once knew this. So he says, I'm going to remind you of some stories you're familiar with that show these things happening to God's people in the past. I've got a little chart here. We're not going to read everything here, but I just wanted to run through the examples he puts out here. Um, the first one he talks about there in verse 5 is Israel wandering in the wilderness. So after Israel had been rescued out of the land of Egypt, they rebelled against God by saying, God, there's no way we can take that promised land. We just can't do it. And they refused to, to do those things, and, and they even built a golden calf, and they did all kinds of things rebelling against God. And what happened as a result of that? They ended up wandering in the wilderness, didn't they? And, and those people didn't get to see the promised land. So God was telling them an example of somebody who, when they looked at what God asked them to do, they didn't trust in God. They didn't believe what God was saying. And so they tried to chart their own path. And what happened? God punished them. He let them wander in the wilderness. The next example he talks about in verse 6 is about rebellious angels. We can see some of that in Genesis 6. But if you really uh, look at what he's quoting, he's quoting uh, 1 Enoch, which was a popular Jewish text at the time that these Jews would have known. Um, I'm not necessarily going to quote First uh, Enoch or anything this morning, but the idea of the story he shares with us here in verse 6 is that these angels that contended with God, they weren't satisfied with their position, but they wanted to be equal with God. They wanted uh, to, to be just as powerful as God and, and to be just as glorious as God. And so they rebelled against him. And what ultimately happened is they were destroyed and it says they're kept in eternal chains. These angels became so built up with pride that they thought they could be equal with God or they deserve to be equal with God. You know, how easy is it for us to show that in so many little ways in our life? 
when we deny God's way of doing something and replace it with ours, we're telling God, I know this is what you said to do, God, but I know better in this situation. I know what we should be doing. We put ourselves on the same level as God when we think we can make decisions better than him. And we even place ourselves above him. In verse 7, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we, we think about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were, uh, you know, really a blessed people physically. They had a very fruitful land, and you know, that's why Lot chose that land. Uh, it had a lot of great things going for it. However, they were overcome, particularly with sexual immorality, to the point where when these angels visited the city that Lot was keeping in his house, they were overcome with their desire. All they could think about was their own desires. Now, that affluence had caused them to be so focused on these desires. And we know what happened to that city. God destroyed it and it smoldered forever. <laughs> he, did, uh, he, he definitely had judge, uh, judgment there and justice there. But these people were overcome with their desire uh, to sin, the, overcome with that lust. The next one he mentions, he mentions three in verse 11. Uh, we can see that in Genesis chapter four, the way of Cain, when he, as he talks about here. Cain, you know, offered what he wanted to offer to God. He thought that was a good sacrifice to God. And he really wasn't willing to listen to what God uh, says to that. And we know that he got angry and jealous of his brother. He kills his brother Abel. And, and really, even at the end of that story, he's still so self-focused. If you read in, in verse chap, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, if you read that, he's still just so focused on himself. He's not really concerned with uh, what God has in that situation. But he was so overwhelmed with, I know what I should be doing here. I know what's good, that he wasn't willing to listen to God. And it led to anger and jealousy in his heart. He talks about the way of Balaam, the era of Balaam, I should say. So uh, notice uh, in our text here, if we, if we read in verse 11, I guess we should just read that verse. In verse 11, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward. So he points out here, greed in the way of Balaam for reward. This one was all about money. And we remember the story of Balaam, how he wanted to curse God's people so that he could be rewarded and, and paid by God's people's enemies. However, every time he did, he blessed them instead. He was very frustrating, but he was determined to have that gain by cursing God's people. And he was looking to find another way. And it really almost cost him his life in Numbers 22. 22, you could read that. But the way of Balaam, uh, uh, the error of Balaam was so focused on riches, so focused on gain, that he disregarded all of God's people. He said, I'm going to throw them under so that I can be rich, so I can do these things. And the last one he mentions there uh, in verse 11 is the rebellion of Korah. And, and really, when you think about the rebellion of Korah, it was all spurned on by jealousy. And you read that in, in the beginning of Numbers chapter 16, where he was jealous of Moses' uh, standing and his position with the people. He wanted to be the one that people went to. He wanted to be the one that had the power. And he wasn't able to step back and look at how God had blessed him and what he was given and what he was blessed with, but he was just so focused on somebody else has more. They're so focused on someone else's gain that was greater than his. And this led to him uh, you know, hurting himself and hurting others as well. And he gives us these examples to really drive home the point of where these things can go, doesn't he? These attitudes can get out of control really fast. And he shows them all these examples in God's history of his people 
showing how these things come in. He shows that we shouldn't be trusting in our own ways as Israel was when they were wandering in the wilderness. We need to be watchful that we're not placing ourselves equal to God like those angels did, that we're not elevating our own ways above God's ways or equal with God's ways, that we're not being overcome by lust like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were, that we're not uh, focused on doing it our own way like Cain was, not overcome by the desire for riches like Balaam was, and that we're not being driven by jealousy and desire for power and authority like Korah was. Do we ever see these things as motivations in our lives? I mean, the Bible tells us over and over that these lusts of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride, all these things show up. On this list, we have power, we have riches, we have um, we have um, uh, lust, we have lots of things that we are tempted by. When we let these things tempt us over our service to God and over our service to our fellow man, uh, over our service to our brethren, then we're being just like these people are. In these examples, these people were chasing these things over God's people. They placed their desire over God's people. And it's so easy when we are tempted with one of these things to forget about God's people, isn't it? Not only is it easy to forget about God, but it's easy to forget about God's people too. And that's what he's trying to tell the church here. You need to be watchful for these things. These are the things that are threatening the faith. You know, I think it's interesting here that all of the threats that he's talking about are things that rise up in the hearts of the saints. Those things that rise up in the people of that congregation. He's not, you know, certainly these things are the work of the devil, but he's not talking about the devil knocking on the door and barging in and overtaking. He's talking about people making decisions, isn't he? And that's what's so, uh, so humbling for me as we read this passage, as we think about our church, when we think about our congregation, when we think about ourselves, it's those individual decisions that can harm the church, that can cause them to go in those ways of error. And it's not just for ourselves that we face those consequences, but the congregation as well. And really, he's focused on you know, not only having a people that have a heart turns toward God or are motivated to do these things for the right reason, but people who are consistent, people who are looking at the ways of God, doing those things consistently and, and really showing effectively that they are followers of God because of their actions, because of the things they do and the things that they overcome. He, he shows us all these threats uh, to the faith. Now, how do we contend uh, against these threats? How do we contend for our faith? That's the second question he asked this morning. In Jude 1, verse 20, if you would read there with me, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So he gives us a long list of things here. Not necessarily a long list, but he gives us a list of things here of how we contend for the faith. How do we contend against those attitudes that we just talked about? The first one he mentions here is that, um, that we're building up yourselves on the most holy faith. Now notice what the uh, noun is there. It doesn't say building up yourself on the most holy faith, but he says building up yourselves on the most holy faith. So this is not, um, this is really focused on we, not me, when he talks about this. He's talking about us working together as a congregation, as God's people. We are building ourselves together. It says what? On the most holy faith. 
So think about us as a church family and how do, what, what makes us stronger? What helps us build on the most holy faith? I think that's really focused on building on what gives us unity. And the scripture is very clear that what gives us unity is focusing on the scriptures, isn't it? When we agree to focus on the scriptures and look at what God has said and stop worrying about what we want to do and focus on what God wants to do, that unites us. That's the foundation we must build on. And the biggest part of that is the gospel. We must be a church that is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the foundation we build ourselves on. We need to not lose sight of that. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He talks about a holistic approach here, doesn't he? He talks about looking at the needs of everyone. This is a beautiful passage and such a great blessing if our church can, can show these things. And, and I think we do show a lot of these things. But we fulfill the joy that he set before us. We fulfill those things when we are like-minded, when we're united in love of one accord and of one mind. And that can only happen through the gospel. That can only happen through the word of God. We need to make sure that we're building on the word of God as his church. And I challenge you to think about ways that you can uh, do that in this congregation. Think about ways that you can do things not just to build yourself up or build your own faith up stronger, but how can you do that with your fellow Christians? How can you do that with your congregation? How can you work together to focus on the gospel, to focus on unity, to focus on uh, the foundation that we are all built on? It's a great blessing that we can have in this unity in the scriptures. The next thing he mentions there is praying and the Holy Ghost. So as we think about this house that we're building on, he talks about the foundation being the truth of God, you know, being the word, being the gospel, those things are the foundation that we build up on. And the thing he asks us to do first is praying in the Holy Ghost. You know, how often do your prayers become self-focused? Now, that's a big challenge for me. I don't know about you, but it's so easy to think about your own needs and your own struggles. And when we go to prayer, certainly we need to take those things to God. But do we pray to God only for ourselves, self-focused prayers, or do we include our brethren in that? Do we include the people of this congregation who have needs? Do we include uh, the church here, apparently, and the church as a whole? Do we pray for those things? He said for this to be effective, for us to be shielded against these bad attitudes, we need to be focused on prayer in the Holy Ghost, be on, focused on prayer and, and, and in the Holy Ghost. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, we see the fruit of this Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. When we're praying to work together in the Spirit, these things, these are the things, these are the fruits we want to see come from ourselves and from our congregation. We want to see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. We need to see those things. And that's not going to be achieved unless we strive together in prayer and the Spirit. And the next thing he asks us to do is to keep ourselves in the love of God. So notice again here, it's not saying keep yourself in the love of God, but it's saying keep yourselves in the love of God. Again, this is focused on we, this is not focused on me. Now, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? 
How do we keep ourselves connected with God? And that is by showing our love to him. In 1 John 5, verse 1, whosoever believe that Jesus Christ is born of God and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So here he makes a connection. Not only when, whenever we obey God do we show our love to God, but what else does he say there? By this we, in verse two, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. If we want our congregation to be united in love, that's not going to happen unless we first show our love to God through obedience. So not only do we need to be obedient to God, show our love to him, but we as a people need to work together. And if we want to be together in love, we need to love God together. We need to be watchful of each other, help each other to obey God and to love God and to focus on him. So when we think about the foundation we have of the scriptures, this unity that we have through the gospel, we build up this prayer and this obedience to God. And what, uh, what finishes that off? He says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This is with a future focus. We're doing this and you know sometimes we get overwhelmed in the moment, but what does he say? We're doing all these things. Why? Because we're looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. We're looking with an eternal perspective. So we together know what's set before us. We have the word of God. We are praying to God to strengthen us in that, to strengthen each other. We're built up in love with our obedience to him and that, and that shows our love to God and love to each other. And all of that is held together by having an eternal perspective. Every day having the perspective of looking to that gift of eternal life, looking at the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we get focused, so focused on what I need right now or what I need today, we can so easily lose focus. And he says for us to defend against those things that can tear down his church, those things that can hurt our congregation, that can hurt us, we need to have an eternal focus as we do those things. So we're praying to God with an eternal focus. We are serving him every day with an eternal focus. We're working towards that eternal goal. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Always looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We have that eternal focus. We're excited. We're looking for God coming back, not just to get, uh, not just ourselves, but together as a church. We're hastening that day. The last thing he says here, verse 22, and some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So he talks about ways that we interact with our fellow men here, doesn't he? So as we're defending against these things, he says, sometimes we're going to need to have compassion uh, to make that difference. So we need to help our brother. We need to encourage them with compassion and help them uh, through those struggles. And verse 23, it says, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. He says, sometimes it might have to be a little bit more intense. It says, saving with fear, pulling them out of the fire. It says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So we are people who want to be a pure people and we hate those things that God hates. 
We hate those things that bring dishonor to God, those spots on that perfect garment that, that we put on, that we put on Jesus, and anything we see that's on that garment that dishonors him, that dirties that garment, it says that we hate those things. So we as a people are looking out for each other. We're looking for ourselves. We're open to the feedback of our brethren when we hear a brother say, with compassion, you need to make, you need to make some changes here. Or if a brother maybe even brings in some fear and says, hey, something's really got to change here. We need to be willing to do that, and we also need to be willing to receive that. And why? Because we hate the things that God hates. We love the things that God loves. We must have that hatred for sin as well, lifting each other up, building each other up continuously. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says, if you see somebody that's struggling, overtaken with a fault, he says, you need to restore them. And what does it say? Okay, think about yourself. Put yourself in their situation, considering yourself, lest you're going to be tempted as well. He acknowledges that these things can penetrate into a group of people. He says, do this not just for your brother, but for yourself also. It's kind of reverse of what we've been talking about. It's really easy um, to focus on our own needs, and we talked a lot about selfishness, but when it comes to identifying um, weaknesses, it's awful easy to do that for other people and not yourself. Uh, and so when he talks about the weaknesses here, he says, you know, you need to, to help restore them, and, and, and you want that done to you as well. You may be willing to receive that as well, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. If we're going to be built up, if we're going to be profitable, if we're going to be glorifying to God, we need to be doing this, bearing another's burdens so that we can fulfill the vision that Christ had, that we can be a glorifying church to him, his body. So when he, just to summarize the things that he asks us to do to contend for the faith, build up yourselves on the most holy faith. We got to start with that foundation, the gospel of Jesus. We start with the foundation of his word, the truths that he's given us. That's how we unify ourselves and that's how we get started. We pray in the Holy Ghost and we keep ourselves in the love of God. We're praying for each other. We're praying for ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. We're praying for the church and we're also holding ourselves accountable and holding others accountable for obedience to God. Those things are going to build up his people and doing all of that, looking for the mercy of our Lord with an eternal perspective looking to the mercy that Jesus has given us and that eternal reward we have. We're looking towards that, that unites us all together and we're caring for others. We're watching out for everybody. We're going to reach out when we see someone in need and we're going to help lift them up and expect that to be done to us. And when we receive that rebuke or when we receive that encouragement, that we accept that and let it make a positive difference for us. You know, I, I want to read again uh, as we start to close uh, Jude, uh, the, the last bit. Verse 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And the reason why I read that, I know this is very similar to how a lot of other books change, but he's, you know, he, he's talking about these people. He's saying, you know, God's got your back. He's going to give you the victory, but you need to look out for these things. 
And here are some ways that you can be vigilant, that you can look out, that you can fix them. But what does he do at the end of the book? He draws it back to God, doesn't he? This is all about glorifying God. We know God is going to empower us to do these things. If we, with a true heart, want to build up this glorious thing that he has set forth, then he's going to make it happen. He's going to make it happen, and it all is to be done to his glory. That's what it's all about. He brings us back to the eternal perspective of glorifying our God. This morning, I ask for your prayers that, that I could be a part of this uh, congregation that is uh, you know, building it up and not tearing it down. And I pray for each of you that we could work together to build up this congregation, to build up not just this congregation, but the Lord's church as a whole. And we've seen that if we allow ourselves to slip up, if we allow ourselves to start going down these paths, that Jude warned us about today, we see where those lead. We see they lead to destruction, not just for us, but for others as well. And I encourage you to look at those things. And I encourage you as we leave this morning to go back and read some of those stories that we, that we mentioned. I put the references there. Uh, if you want those, I can give those to you after church. But um, those are good stories to remind us of where those things can go. If you examine yourself this morning and find that you need the prayers of the church, to be strengthened in these ways, we'd be happy to pray for you. And if you find yourself wanting to be a part of this church, this church that glorifies God, that he has set, that he's chosen, that he's sanctified, that he's, he's done all these things, that's offered to you too. And we'd be happy to welcome you in the family of God. You can come forward, you can be baptized, you can confess your sins and walk away repenting and being a piece of his kingdom. If you find yourself in either case, please come forward as we sing the song of invitation.